0: Hello and welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing with a chapter about different case studies of people with mental health issues, so there will be lots of content warnings for this episode. In general, content warning for mental health and trauma, so let's get started. Series D Psychosomatic Disorders A marked increase in mental disorders and the creation of conditions favorable to the development of specific, morbid phenomena are not the only consequences of the colonial war in Algeria. Quite apart from the pathology of torture, there flourishes in Algeria a pathology of atmosphere, a state which leads medical practitioners to say, when confronted with a case which they cannot understand, this will all be cleared up when this damned war is over. We promise to group together in this fourth series the illnesses met with among Algerians, some of whom were interned in concentration camps. The main characteristic of these illnesses is that they are of the psychosomatic type. The name psychosomatic pathology is given to the general body of organic disorders, the development of which is favoured by a conflicting situation. Footnote 1. The name psychosomatic is used because the determinism is psychic in origin. This pathology is considered as a means whereby the organism responds to, in other words adapts itself to, the conflict it is faced with, the disorder being at the same time a symptom and a cure. More precisely, it is generally conceded that the organism, once again we are speaking of the corticovisceral unity, the psychosomatic unity of former times, resolves the conflict by unsatisfactory, but on the whole economical, means... The organism in fact chooses the lesser evil in order to avoid catastrophe. On the whole, this pathology is very well known today, although the different therapeutic methods proposed – relaxation and suggestion for example – seem to us very uncertain. In the Second World War in England during the air raids and in the Soviet Union among the besieged populations of towns, notably in Stalingrad, there was a great increase in reports of the occurrence of such disorders. Today we know very well that it is not necessary to be wounded by a bullet in order to suffer from the fact of war, in body as well as in mind. Like all other wars, the Algerian war has created its contingent of corticovisceral illnesses. With the exception of Group G described below, all the disorders met with in Algeria have already been described during the course of traditional wars. Group G seems to us to be specific to the colonial war in Algeria. This particular form of pathology, a generalized muscular contraction, had already called forth attention before the revolution began, but the doctors described it by portraying it as a congenital stigma of the native, an original part of his nervous system where, it was stated, it was possible to find the proof of a predominance of the extrapyramidal system in the native. Footnote 2 This contracture is in fact simply the postural accompaniment to the native's reticence, this expression in muscular form of his rigidity and his refusal with regard to colonial authority. Psychiatric Symptoms Encountered A. Stomach ulcers Very numerous. The pains are felt predominantly at night, with considerable vomiting loss of weight, sadness and moroseness, and irritability in exceptional cases. It should be noted that the majority of these patients are very young, from 18 to 25 years old. As a general rule, we never advise surgical intervention. A gastrectomy was performed on two occasions, and in these two same cases, a second intervention was necessary in the same year as the first. B. Nephritic colic. Here again we find pains which came on intensely at night. Obviously, stones are hardly ever present. These colics may occur, though rarely, in patients from 14 to 16 years old. C. Menstruation trouble in women. This pathology is very well known, and we shall not spend much time on it. Either the women affected remain 3 or 4 months without menstruation, or else considerable pain accompanies it which has repercussions on character and conduct. D. Intense sleeplessness caused by idiopathic tremors. The patients are young adults to which all rest is denied because of a generalized slight shaking reminiscent of a total case of Parkinson's disease. Here too scientific thinkers could invoke an extrapyramidal determinism. D. Hair turning white early. Among the survivors of the interrogation centers, the hair often turns white suddenly, either in patches, in certain areas, or totally. Very often this is accompanied by serious debility and sexual impotence. F Paroxysmal tachycardias The cardiac rhythm accelerates abruptly, 120, 130, or 140 per minute. These tachycardias are accompanied by anxiety. And by an impression of imminent death. The end of the crisis is marked by a heavy sweating fit. G. Generalized contraction with muscular stiffness. These symptoms are found in patients of the masculine sex who find it increasingly difficult, in two cases, the appearance of the symptoms was abrupt, to execute certain movements going upstairs, walking quickly, or running. The cause of this difficulty lies in a characteristic rigidity which inevitably reminds us of the impairing of certain regions of the brain, central gray nuclei. It is an extended rigidity, and walking is performed with small steps. The passive flexion of the lower limbs is almost impossible. No relaxation can be achieved. The patient seems to be made all of a piece. Subjected as he is to sudden contraction and incapable of the slightest voluntary relaxation. The face is rigid, but expresses a marked degree of bewilderment. The patient does not seem able to release his nervous tension. He is constantly tense, waiting between life and death. Thus, one of the patients said to us, You see, I'm already stiff like a dead man. Footnote 3 Criminal impulses found in North Africans, which have their origin in the National War of Liberation. It is not only necessary to fight for the liberty of your people. You must also teach that people once again, and first learn once again yourself. What is the full stature of a man? And this you must do for as long as the fight lasts. You must go back into history, that history of men damned by other men and you must bring about and render possible the meeting of your people and other men. In reality, the soldier who's engaged in armed combat in a national war deliberately measures from day to day the sum of all the degradation inflicted upon man by colonial oppression. The man of action has sometimes the exhausting impression that he must restore the whole of his people, that he must bring every one of them up out of the pit and out of the shadows. He very often sees that his task is not only to hunt down the enemy forces, but also to overcome the kernel of despair, which has hardened in the natives' being. The period of oppression is painful, but the conflict, by reinstating the downtrodden, sets on foot a process of reintegration which is fertile and decisive in the extreme. A people's victorious fight not only consecrates the triumph of its rights, it also gives to that people consistency coherence, and homogeneity. For colonialism has not simply depersonalized the individual it has colonized, this depersonalization is equally felt in the collective sphere, on the level of social structures. The colonized people find that they are reduced to a body of individuals, who only find cohesion when in the presence of the colonizing nation. The fight carried on by a people for its liberation leads it, according to circumstances, either to refuse or else to explode the so-called truths which have been established in its consciousness by the colonial civil administration, by the military occupation, and by economic exploitation. Armed conflict alone can really drive out these falsehoods created in man, which force into inferiority the most lively minds among us, and which, literally, mutilate us. How many times in Paris, in Aix, in Algiers, or in Baix-Terre, have we not heard men from the colonized countries violently protesting against the pretended laziness of the black man, or the Algerian, and of the Vietnamese? And yet, is it not the simple truth that under the colonial regime, a fella who is keen on his work or a negro who refuses to rest are nothing but pathological cases? The native's laziness is the conscious sabotage of the colonial machine." On the biological plane, it is a remarkable system of auto protection, and in any case, it is a sure break upon the seizure of the whole country by the occupying power. The resistance that forests and swamps present to foreign penetration is the natural ally of the native. His point of view must be understood. It is time to stop remonstrating and declaring that the N word is a great worker and that the Arab is first rate at clearing ground. Under the colonial regime, What is true for the Arab and for the Negro is that they should not lift their little fingers nor in the slightest degree help the oppressor to sink his claws deeper into his prey. The duty of the native, who has not yet reached maturity in political consciousness and decided to hurl back oppression, is literally to make it so that the slightest gesture has to be torn out of him. This is a very concrete manifestation of non-cooperation, or at least of minimum cooperation. These observations, which concern the relations between the native and his work, could equally be applied to the respect the native has for the oppressor's laws, to the regular payment of rates and taxes, and to the relations which the native has with the colonial system. Under the colonial regime, gratitude, sincerity, and honour are empty words. During the last few years, I have had occasion to verify a very classic fundamental idea, that honour dignity and respect for the given word can only manifest themselves in the framework of national and international homogeneity. From the moment that you and your like are liquidated, like so many dogs, you have no other resource but to use all and every means to regain your importance as a man. You must therefore weigh as heavily as you can upon the body of your torturer, in order that his soul, lost in some byway, may finally find once more its universal dimension. During these last years, I have had occasion to see that in wartime Algeria, honour, self-sacrifice, love of life and scorn of death have taken on no ordinary forms. There is no question of singing the praises of those who are fighting. We are concerned here with a very ordinary statement, which even the most rabid colonialists have not failed to make the fighting Algerian has an unusual manner of fighting and dying, and no reference to Islam or to paradise can explain that generous dedication of self when there is question of defending his people or shielding his brothers. And there is that overwhelming silence, but of course the body cries out, that silence that overwhelms the torturer. Let us admit there, here we find again that That very ancient law, which forbids any element whatsoever to remain unmoved when the nation has begun to march, when man affirms and claims at the same time his limitless humanity. Among the characteristics of the Algerian people, as observed by colonialism, we will particularly notice their appalling criminality. Before 1954, magistrates, policemen, barristers, journalists, and legal doctors agreed unanimously that criminality in Algeria was a problem. Among the characteristics of the Algerian people, as observed by colonialism, we will particularly notice their appalling criminality. Before 1954, magistrates, policemen, barristers, journalists and legal doctors agreed unanimously that criminality in Algeria was a problem. It was affirmed that the Algerian was a born criminal. A theory was elaborated and scientific proofs were found to support it. This theory was taught in the universities for over 20 years. Algerian medical students received this education and, imperceptibly, after accommodating themselves to colonialism, the elite came also to accommodate themselves to the inherent stigma of the Algerian people. They were born slackers, born liars, born robbers, and born criminals. We propose here to repeat this official theory and to recall to mind the concrete bases and the scientific arguments used to create it. Later on, we shall go over the facts and try to reinterpret them. The Algerian frequently kills other men. It is a fact, the magistrates will tell you, that four-fifths of cases brought to court deal with blows and woundings. The proportion of criminality in Algeria is one of the heaviest and largest in the world. Or so they affirm. There are no minor delinquencies. When the Algerian, and this applies equally to all North Africans, puts himself outside the law, it is always outside to the maximum. The Algerian kills savagely. First, the favourite weapon is the knife. The magistrates, who know the country, have created a minor philosophy on this subject. The Kabyle, for example, prefer a pistol or a gun. The Arabs of the plain have a preference for the knife. Certain magistrates wonder if the Algerian has not an inner need for the sight of blood. The Algerian, you are told, needs to feel warm blood, and to bathe in the blood of his victim. These magistrates, policemen, and doctors hold serious dissertations on the relationship between the Muslim soul and blood. Footnote 4 A certain number of magistrates go so far as to say that the reason why an Algerian kills a man is primarily and above all in order to slit his throat. The savagery of the Algerian shows itself especially in the number of wounds he inflicts, some of these being unnecessary once the victim has been killed. Autopsies establish one fact incontestably. The murderer gives the impression, by inflicting many wounds of equal deadliness, that he wished to kill an incalculable number of times. The Algerian kills for no reason. Very frequently, magistrates and policemen are nonplussed by the motives of a murder. It may arise out of a gesture, an illusion, an ambiguous statement, a quarrel over an olive tree which is possessed in common, or an animal which is strayed by an eighth of an acre. Confronted by such a murder, sometimes by a double or triple murder, The looked-for cause and the expected motive which would justify or give grounds for these murders is finally found to be of disappointing triviality. From thence springs the frequent impression that the social group is hiding the real motives. Finally, robbery as practiced by an Algerian is always coupled with housebreaking, whether accompanied or not by manslaughter, and in any case, with aggression against the owner. All these elements which cluster around Algerian criminality have appeared to specify its nature sufficiently clearly to enable a tentative systemization to be built up. Similar, though somewhat less weighty, observations were made in Tunisia and Morocco, and thus the question shifted more and more onto the ground of North African criminality. For over 30 years, under the constant direction of Professor Perrault, Professor of Psychiatry on the Faculty of Algiers, several teams worked with the aim of specifying the forms of expression of this criminality and of establishing a sociological, functional, and anatomical interpretation for them. We shall here quote the main works on this subject by the Psychiatric School of the Faculty of Algiers. The conclusions of the researches carried on for over 20 years were, let us recall to mind, the subject of authoritative lectures from the Chair of Psychiatry. It is thus that Algerian doctors, who are graduates of the Faculty of Algiers, are obliged to hear and learn that the Algerian is a born criminal. Moreover, I remember certain among us who in all sincerity uphold and develop these theories that we had learned. We even add, it's a hard pill to swallow, but it's been scientifically established. The North African is a criminal. His predatory instinct is well known. His intense aggressivity is visible to the naked eye. The North African likes extremes, so we can never entirely trust him. Today he is the best of friends, tomorrow the worst of enemies. He is insensible to shades of meaning, and Cartesianism is fundamentally foreign to him. The sense of balance, the weighing and pondering of an opinion or action, clashes with his most intimate nature. The North African is a violent person, of a hereditary violence. We find him incapable of self-discipline, or of canalising his impulses. Yes, the Algerian is a congenital impulsive. But we must be precise. This impulsiveness is largely aggressive and generally homicidal. It is in this fashion that we come to explain the unorthodox behaviour of the Algerian, who is a prey to melancholia. The French psychiatrists in Algeria found themselves faced with a difficult problem. They were accustomed, when dealing with a patient subject to melancholia, to fear that he would commit suicide. Now the melancholic Algerian takes to killing. This illness of the moral consciousness which is always accompanied by auto-accusation and auto-destructive tendencies, took on in the case of Algerians, heterodestructive forms. The melancholic Algerian does not commit suicide. He kills. This is the homicidal melancholia which has been thoroughly studied by Professor Paro in the thesis of his pupil, Monterey. How did the Algerian school deal with such an anomaly? First, said the schools of Algeria, Killing oneself is a turning into and against oneself. It implies looking at oneself. It means practicing introspection. Now, the Algerian is not given to an inner life. There is no inner life where the North African is concerned. On the contrary, the North African gets rid of his worries by throwing himself on the people who surround him. He does not analyze. Since by definition melancholia is an illness of the moral conscience, it is clear that the Algerian can only develop pseudo-melancholia, since the precariousness of his conscience and the feebleness of his moral sense are well known. This incapacity on the part of the Algerian to analyse the situation and to organise a mental panorama is perfectly understandable if we refer to the two classes of causality set forth by French writers. First, We must notice intellectual aptitudes. The Algerian is strongly marked by mental debility. If we are to really understand this datum, we must go back to the semiology established by the Algerian school of psychiatry. The native, it is stated by them, presents the following characteristics. Complete or almost complete lack of emotivity. Credulous and susceptible to the extreme. Persistent obstinacy. Mental plurality, without the spirit of curiosity found in the Western child. Tendency to accidents and pithyotic reactions. Footnote 5. The Algerian does not see the whole of a question. The questions he asks himself always consider the details and exclude all synthesis. He is a pointless, clinging to objects, lost in details, insensible to ideas, and impervious to concepts verbal expression is reduced to a minimum. His actions are always impulsive and aggressive. He is incapable of grasping detail when looking at the whole, and he absolutizes the element and takes the part for the whole. Thus he will have total reactions when confronted with particular incitements and with insignificant causes, such as a fig tree, a gesture, or a sheep on his land. His congenital aggressivity finds ways of expressing itself on the slightest pretext. It is a state of aggressivity in its purest form. Footnote 6 Leaving the descriptive stage, the Algiers school begins on that of explanation. It was in 1935 at the Congress of Mental Specialists and Neurologists that Professor Porro defined the scientific basis of his theory. In the discussion that followed the report by Baruch on Hysteria, he pointed out that, quote, The native of North Africa, whose superior and cortical activities are only slightly developed, is a primitive creature whose life, essentially vegetative and instinctive, is above all regulated by his diencephalon. End quote. In order to estimate the importance of this discovery of Professor Paros, we should remember that the characteristic of the human species, when compared to other vertebrates, is that it is corticalized. The diencephalon is one of the most primitive parts of the brain, and man is, above all, the vertebrate in which the cortex dominates. For Professor Paro, the life of the native of North Africa is dominated by diencephalic urges. It is as much as to say that in a way the native North African is deprived of a cortex. Professor Porro does not shrink from this contradiction and in April 1939 in the Southern Medical and Surgical Gazette, he states precisely, in collaboration with his pupil Sutter, who is at present Professor of Psychiatry in Algiers, Quote, Primitivism is not a lack of maturity or a marked stoppage in the development of the intellectual psychism. It is a social condition which has reached the limit of its evolution. It is logically adopted to a life different from ours. Finally, the professors come to the very basis of the doctrine. This primitivism is not merely a way of living which is the result of a special upbringing. It has much deeper roots. We even consider that it must have its substratum in a particular predisposition of the architectonic structure or at least in the dynamic hierarchization of the nervous centers. We are in the presence of a coherent body of comportment and of a coherent life which can be explained scientifically. The Algerian has no cortex, or more precisely, he is dominated, like the inferior vertebrates, by the diencephalon. The cortical functions, if they exist at all, are very feeble and are practically unintegrated into the dynamic of existence." End quote. There is thus neither mystery nor paradox. The hesitation of the colonist in responsibility to the native is not racism nor paternalism, but quite simply a scientific appreciation of the biologically limited possibilities of the native. Let us end this review by seeking a summing up which takes the whole of Africa for its field from Dr. A. Carruthers, an expert from the World Health Organization. This international expert brought together the essentials of his observations in a book which was published in 1954. Footnote 7 Dr. Carruthers' work was carried on in Central and East Africa, but his conclusions form a group with those of the North African School. For in fact, the international expert states, quote, The African makes very little use of his frontal lobes. All the particularities of African psychiatry can be put down to frontal laziness. End quote. Footnote 8. In order to make his point clearer, Dr. Carruthers establishes a lively comparison. He puts forward the idea that the normal African is a lobotomized European. Okay. We know that the Anglo-Saxon school believed that they had found a radical cure for certain serious forms of mental illness by practicing the section of an important part of the brain. Since then, however, the establishment of the fact that this method seriously impaired the personality has led to its being abandoned. According to Dr. Carruthers, the likeness existing between the normal African native and the lobotomized European is striking. Dr. Carruthers, having studied the works of different authors working in Africa, offers us a conclusion which is the basis of a uniform conception of the African. He writes, quote, Such are the given facts of the case, which do not concern European categories. They have been gathered in different regions of East, West, and South Africa. And on the whole, each author had little or no knowledge of the work of the others. The essential similarity of these researches is therefore quite remarkable. End quote Footnote nine. We should point out before concluding that doctor Carruthers defined the Mau Mau Revolt as the expression of an unconscious frustration complex, whose reoccurrence could be scientifically avoided by spectacular psychological adaptations. So it was that unusual behavior, the African's frequent criminality, the triviality of his motives, the The murderous and always bloody nature of his brawls raised a problem in observers' minds. The proposed explanation, which has come to be taught as a subject in the universities, seems in the last analysis to be the following. The layout of the cerebral structures of the North African are responsible both for the native's laziness, for his intellectual and social inaptitude, and for his almost animal impulsivity. The criminal impulses of the North African are the transcription into the nature of his behaviour, of a given arrangement of the nervous system. It is a reaction which is neurologically understandable and written into the nature of things, of the thing, which is biologically organised. The lack of integration of the frontal lobes in the cerebral dynamic is the explanation of the African's laziness, of his crimes, his robberies, his rapes and his lies. It was a sub prefect who has now become a prefect who voiced the conclusion to me. We must counter these natural creatures, he said, who obey the laws of their nature blindly with a strict, relentless, ruling class. We must tame nature, not convince it. Discipline, training, mastering, and today pacifying are the words most frequently used by the colonialists in occupied territories. If we have spent a long time in going over the theories held by the colonialist scientists, it was less with the intention of showing their poverty and absurdity than of raising a very important theoretical and practical problem. In fact, Algerian criminality only represented a subsection of the questions which were raised by the revolution, which could be reasoned out on the level of political discussion and demystification. But it so happens that the talks which formed the subject of this theme were so fruitful that they allowed us to understand and discern more deeply the idea of social and individual liberation. When in revolutionary practice the question of Algerian criminality is raised in the presence of leaders and militants, when the average figures of crimes, misdemeanours and robberies are cited for the period before the revolution, when it is explained that the nature of a crime or the frequency of offences depends on the relations which exist between men and women and between persons and the state and when everybody understands this when we see before us the breaking up of the idea of the Algerian or the North African who is a criminal by vocation an idea which was equally implanted into the consciousness of the Algerian because after all we're a quick tempered rowdy bad lot that's the way it is then it can be said for sure that the revolution is making progress. And that's going to do it for this week's reading. Next time, we will continue with this chapter and possibly be finishing off the book. I just have to finish recording the rest and see how that spreads out. If you have questions, comments, corrections, suggestions about this book or a potential future book, You can email leftistreading at gmail.com or contact the show at leftistreading on Twitter. If people have suggestions for additional readings that are relevant to this, especially anything short or an excerpt or anything like that that could be relevant, I think it'd be useful to suggest before moving on to the next long book we do. This show is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can go to abnormalmapping.com to find this and lots of other leftist podcasts. Her intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work on soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening. And keep reading.